In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Great. So, um, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Exodus. Uh, we have studied uh, all the way up to chapter 4 so far. Um, does anyone want to recap uh, what we talked about last time? Uh, God was like, okay, fine. I'll I'll let Aaron go with you. If you're really that worried, you can have Aaron to be with you. And they went, and I really don't remember after that. Okay. Right. So the, the main event was God speaking to Moses through the burning bush, which is one of the most famous events of, of in all of the scripture. Um, and after a lot of convincing and showing uh, Moses uh, the miracles that he would do in front of the people and in front of Pharaoh to prove that God is the one who sent him. Uh, he, he sets on his way, uh, and, and then uh, he, he finally um, uh, arrives uh, to Egypt, uh, him and Aaron, and he, Moses does the signs that God had told him to do to show to the Israelites that he is in fact sent by God. Okay, and that's kind of where we ended last time is at this point, Moses and Aaron are back in Egypt. Um, they are preparing now to go and to um, speak with Moses or sorry, with Pharaoh. And he did um, the signs in front of the Israelites and the Israelites, it says that they believed. So at this point, the Israelites, based on the signs that they saw from Moses, they believe that he was sent by God. They believe that he is going to um, free them from the, the from Pharaoh. Okay. So it says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, which is exactly what God had told uh, Moses to do. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So this response that Pharaoh gave is, is very much um, related to the, his ignorance about who God is. You know, it said earlier that um, there was a new Pharaoh that had come, one that did not know Joseph, one that did not know the history, one that did not know what is it that God had done for the Israelites, or what is it really that Joseph had done for Egypt, right? You know, the reason that Pharaoh loved Joseph, the, 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 the original Pharaoh at the time of Joseph, the reason that Pharaoh loved Joseph so much is because he saw how much Joseph served and worked and how much the God of Joseph worked to protect the people from the famine. Okay, um, Hundreds of years have passed since then. And now you have this Pharaoh who is completely disconnected from all these events that had happened in the past. He, he, he doesn't really care about them. He doesn't feel like there's any need, present need, for this God. And actually... Um, typically the pharaohs themselves were seen as like gods and worshipped. So even the idea of there being another god who is coming and saying, let these people come out of Egypt to worship me, in some sense pharaoh could also take this with a kind of a jealousy, right? It's like, I am, I am the god of Egypt, 
right, in his mind, okay? So this question of who is the Lord is a very important question. And it's important for us as well because based on the answer to this question, it's going to determine how we live, right? When I ask the question, who is the Lord? If my answer to this is God is, he is the creator, he is not just a general generic God that exists, but he is my personal God. He is the one who created me, who formed me, who fashioned me. He is the one who prepares a way for me in my life. He is the one who's redeemed me and saved me. If, if this is the answer to this question of who is the Lord, then it will be reflected in my decisions. It will be reflected in my, my plans, be reflected in, in what I believe, how I think, what I talk, how, what I say, everything. Everything about my life will be determined by this. But here the answer of Pharaoh was, no, I reject this God. I reject this one who I don't consider that he has any authority. I will not listen to him. I do not, I do not acknowledge him in any way. Okay? So um, we can see kind of in, in, in Pharaoh this, this rebellion that has started here even from the beginning, even at the name of God. Who is this Lord, right, that you're talking to me about? Why is it that I should do what you're asking or heed the voice of this God? Um, no, I will, not, I will not let Israel go. And maybe collectively all of humanity is kind of like shaking our hands at God now and saying, who is the Lord? You know, um, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, he's a famous atheist philosopher, um, and he, he famously declared the statement when he says, God is dead, right? In, in, his, in, his, in his understanding, what does that mean? It means that humanity has decided that we do not need him, that we do not need a God, that everything is, um, is, is existent on its own without there having to be a God, without us having to believe in such a God. And so in that sense also, he's saying, who is the Lord? Why, why are we speaking about him? Why do we feel like we need to have some kind of um, submission to, uh, to a deity, to a divinity, to something higher than us, right? Certainly Pharaoh didn't feel that um, that was needed at all and that he was not afraid um, of this God that Moses came and spoke to him about. So it says, so they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with the pestilence or with the sword. Okay? So um, here it's like they're explaining to Pharaoh, okay, which God? This is the God of the Hebrews, right? This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which um, God identified himself as such to Moses in the desert. Um, and he's saying, what, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Like, he's saying there is a, um, like, like, like there is a consequence if you do not allow us to leave, right? God has called us to leave and to worship him, right? And again, we should always keep in mind this symbolism that we spoke about before in the book of Exodus, that uh, Pharaoh represents Satan, and Egypt represents this life with Satan, this life of sin, a life of bondage and slavery to sin. And God is here. He's, he's, uh, he's telling Moses, who is the one to lead the people out of this bondage of slavery, to come and to live with the Lord and to worship God. And so here, like, the devil is resisting this, right? The devil is resisting. He's saying, he's saying I do not acknowledge this God. I will not let your people go, right? And so it's like the devil is tightening his grip on the people, not wanting them to go. Right, And so the people are responding, or Moses and Aaron are responding here. There will be a consequence right? if, if you do not allow us to go. 
um, lest we fall into pestilence or sword. One other point I want to make here um, uh, that I mentioned earlier is the difference between the God of my fathers and my God. And this is especially an important distinction for those of us who grew up in the church, right, whose our families are orthodox and grew up in the church, who call us cradle orthodox, those who were born orthodox, those who were baptized as babies, and those who lived as orthodox with parents um, attending the church regularly. We who experience this have a general sense of our God is the God of our fathers, the God of our family, the God of our people, the God of our culture, the God that maybe other people who are similar to me, we all collectively worship him together, right? And it's easy for us to be complacent and content simply with the idea that, yes, we this is God. We speak about God and he is our God collectively, all right? But when you say, is he my God individually, this is a different question. Because now you're not speaking about, yes, the church, we have liturgies and we have um, you know, Bible studies and the church, we believe in God. And look, this is our priests say this and our bishops say this and the Pope says this and I am a part of the church. Now it's about my individual choices. Like how do I individually choose to live? Do I, for instance, live with having a father of confession, which is a personal decision that I make in order to collectively be part of what the church practices? Do I personally attend liturgies? Do I personally take communion? Do I personally pray? Do I personally fast? Do I personally, maybe the church as a whole prays, the church as a whole fasts, the church as a whole, we believe in the sacraments and we, we, we encourage them and so on. And maybe I feel like I'm a part of the church, yes. But here the question is not just I'm, a, I'm with a lot of people that do this. The question is do I do it? I shouldn't be misled to think that simply because I'm with people that all kind of believe as I do and speak about this, and that, that means that I am necessarily following that same path. It's easy to get stuck on this point because, yes, we who are cradle orthodox, are the, you know, we are in a community, thank God, that all has this faith. But then it falls on each of us to say, how am I going to practice this faith myself? You know, how am I going to practice it individually myself? This is then what determines that this is the God of our fathers versus my God individually, okay? When he says what? The God of the Hebrews. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So Pharaoh is interpreting, is seeing what... The, the, the Hebrews, they have too much time on their hands, okay? They are, they are resting from their labor. For them to even be thinking about this whole business of God and worshiping in the desert and going out and all this stuff, why? Because they have too much time, and they're sitting around lazy and, and, and with too much time on their hands. So Pharaoh is angry from this, right? And so he is now going to add work to them. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they have made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. What do you think about this? What is it that Pharaoh is doing and why he's doing it?
I do think there's a little bit of truth in what he's saying about that that idleness. I think there's a saying that an idle mind is Satan's playground or something like that. Uh, however, I think uh, the people's reaction must be like, oh, look what Moses got us into. So it's an obstacle and I guess testing that, that faithfulness. So definitely I agree with you. Like staying idle and not doing anything, right, is the devil's playground or the devil's workshop, right? Like we're, when, we're, when, when we're empty, maybe a lot of us experienced this in 2020 when we had a lot of time on our hands and it was a time of temptation and it was a time of, of wastefulness and it was a time of, of not being focused or losing and falling away from a lot of the things that maybe were good habits and things that we practiced. Now suddenly like every, all of that disintegrated, right? So I agree with that. But here when Pharaoh is telling them to increase their work, is it because that they were lazy and they weren't doing the right thing? Sephra, you're shaking your head. He pro he gave them more work as a like a punishment of them wanting to leave and wanting to leave him and all of that stuff and kind of put them in their place. So it's a punishment, yes. Uh Obviously, he doesn't want them to go, and he's essentially saying, if you keep trying to do this, look, this is what's going to happen to you, right? I'm going to make your lives miserable, okay? W what else do you feel is, like, relevant and significant about... Put, put, think of it in the symbolic way, right? Pharaoh represents, we said, Satan. Okay, so think about it from a symbolic way. What do you see symbolism in this? Adding more temptation. Well, it is a kind of temptation because he's pushing them, right? He's like pushing them to their limit. You know, have you heard of the acronym, the BUSY, B-U-S-Y? Have you heard of this, the acronym? BUSY stands for being under Satan's yoke, okay? Because one of the things that the devil does to us to keep us from going into the desert and, and worshiping God, which is what here they were asking to do, is he makes us to be excessively busy, right? If I'm excessively busy, if I have excessive amount of work and an excessive amount of stress, then the last thing on my mind is I want to go and I want to worship God, right? Because if I come home from work exhausted, the last thing I want to do is stand up to pray, you know? If I'm already stressed with so many problems and issues in my regular day-to-day -day life, how much harder is it for me to wake up early also on a Sunday, and I also wake up early every other day of the week, how much harder is it also for me to work up early on a Sunday and come to church, right? The more stressed and busy and exhausted that we are beyond, you know, it's like a spectrum, right? Like on the one end, you can be very lazy and have nothing. And on the other hand, you have, you're so overburdened and overwhelmed that you don't have time for a balanced life, you know? Your, your time is completely sucked up by one thing and you don't have time for other things, right? And number one, of course, is this, um, our spiritual life. So here in the sense, Pharaoh is making them so busy, so full of work and stress that they don't even want to think about the idea of worshiping God. Like this is the last thing they want to do, right? All they care about is, okay, uh, we, we, wanna, we, we don't want to go there. We don't want to worship God. Just alleviate the stress. Like get rid of this source of stress um, for us, okay? So afraid of? 
Yes, because the Israelites were um, doing all the manual labor for the Egyptians. And there were millions. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just a small number. So they were like a key part of their country. That if they um, were to leave, then it would be a huge like political problem as well. Like it's, you know. So Pharaoh's not um, thinking of this um, just purely about himself. But he's thinking as a whole nation would suffer if these Israelites leave, right? So what was the way that Pharaoh was to add more work? So he said, okay, normally you have a quota of bricks that you have to produce every day. Um, and, and, and the people were supplied with the straw that was necessary in the making of those bricks, okay? So now he's saying your, your quota of the bricks is going to remain the same, but you are going to have to go and find the straw on your own, right? Which obviously it's going to be much more difficult you have to go find the straw and make the bricks rather than just making the bricks, okay? This was the punishment that Pharaoh gave to the people. How dare you think of going out and worshiping your God? No, I every time you, you want to do that, I'm going to make it harder, harder for you. Again, when you think about it from the symbolic perspective, every time we set out to do some good work or to do some spiritual work, what happens? The devil's temptations increase. Like many of us have experienced like a, a, at the, during the great fast, like things start to get worse, you know? We start to have problems. We start to have things and issues and things that come up that kind of bring us more stress that the devil is wanting to short circuit the benefit that we're getting from the fasting or that the temptation to break the fast becomes so intense, you know? So the more, every time we set in our minds in Sirach chapter two, you know, there's this famous verse that whenever you set your heart to serve the Lord, prepare yourselves for temptation. Every time we begin to do something good, the devil is there to try to stop us. Just like Pharaoh here. The people were wanting to go and worship to God. And so the response of the devil was obstacles, obstacles, things to make you miserable so that you do not go and worship God. So he says, let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? So obviously the people were suffering greatly. They couldn't find the straw, right, to make bricks. That's why it says they were collecting stubble, right? It says here in verse, uh, uh, in verse 12, when it says they, s they went out throughout the whole land of Egypt. They were like searching everywhere. And all they could find was stubble or chaff, right, which is not straw, okay? But that's the only thing they could find. It was like the chaff that was left over from the crops, the harvesting of the crops. They would go and find this as like a substitute for the straw because they couldn't find it. And these taskmasters would require them to continue making the same quota of bricks as before. So indeed, it was miserable for them. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. 
Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you. You shall deliver the quota of bricks. Okay, so um, here he is, you know, very stubbornly standing fast. And even though what he has asked uh, of the people to do is unreasonable, and yet he continues with it because, you know, he, he wants to make them miserable. Like, regardless of whether it's reasonable or not, he wants them to be miserable. And every time they come pleading to him, asking him, please, what you're doing is impossible, he, he comes back to sa and says, no, go and do your work, and no straw will be given to you. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. What do you think about this statement that they're making? So they're mad at Moses and Aaron, okay, and they're saying this. So you think it's fair? So in their perspective, Moses and Aaron, you know, before you came, everything was fine. We had our life. We were doing it. Maybe it wasn't the most luxurious life, but we were content with it. We accepted it, and that's all there was. And before you came, things were much more um much better right and now you have brought upon us all this these problems okay so what are some important points about this number 1 okay when god comes to us and he offers us a new life which is what is happening here right god is coming to the israelites and he's offering them a new life and he's saying, look, I've prepared this place that is, you know, a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a beautiful land, okay? But you have to leave Egypt, travel through the desert, go to this land, defeat the enemies that are in that land, and then you can have the land, and it's yours. And I promise that I will be with you, okay? But do you think the people of, of the, the Israelites would have chosen to leave in these, you know, if that's all that God did? If he would have just told them, just come out, Pharaoh will let you out, walk across the desert, go to this land, defeat the enemies that are there, right? Because this is what God wants them to do later on. Go and inherit the land, and it's yours. And I will be with you through the whole process. If God said this, and that was it, what do you think would have happened? Wouldn't have happened. Why? Relationship with God isn't like how it is, like in the New Testament, where we know who God is. They know God, but there's more of, there isn't as much trust because they don't really like. I mean, I don't want to speak incorrectly in Scripture, but they don't really have a really like they don't have a close relationship with God. They have a superficial faith. Yeah. Okay, definitely they have a superficial faith. These people they live 400 years in a pagan country, right? And they're not yet. Um, th 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 they have not yet received the law. They haven't received the Ten Commandments. They haven't. They ha they don't have all of these milestones that are going to happen later to define them as a nation, as a people who who have a gone right. They have been intermixed with, you know, the 
the Egyptians and seeing the Egyptian culture and people and their pagans and so on, okay? Definitely the, the faith of the Hebrews at this point is very low. What else? So he, remember, God is offering them something better than what they have. Okay? He's offering them something better. And if he would have just told them, you can walk right out of Egypt right now. But the thing we see is the Hebrews are actually pretty content in Egypt. Even though it's kind of a miserable life before this, and they definitely don't have freedom, and they're just working as slaves, right, and being beaten, and, and, and people are acquiring work of them all the time, very hard life, and yet they're still content with this life. Because when God offers them something better, they're hesitant to go. It's like the, the thing I know, even if it's not the best, sometimes feels safer and better than the good thing that I don't know. Because the good thing that I don't know requires me to take risk and requires me to leave behind what I do know. This is actually why a lot of times actually like women, for instance, who are in an abusive relationship, um, even if, let's say, they are being battered by their husbands, they're afraid to leave and they don't want to leave sometimes. Why? Because they don't know what that other life will look like. How can I go and live by myself? How, what's going to happen? What is he going to do to me? Like all these, so even though they're in a very, very bad situation, and yet you find many times that they are like defending him or, or unable to leave him, right? Almost to the point where you have to convince them that it, that's what has to happen, right? We, uh, in, from a spiritual perspective, we're kind of like that because we are living like in a life of sin and a life of slavery to sin. And God comes to us and says, I'm, to, I'm going to give you my spirit and I'm going to lead you out of this life break the bonds of sin in you and offer you a new life but in order for that to happen you have to leave behind some things there are some people you have to leave behind there are some places you have to leave behind there are certain thought patterns you have to leave behind there's things that you have to leave behind whether physical or in your mind okay but what i'm offering you is far far better than what you have but in order to get from point a to point b there is this process there's this journey that we have to travel and that journey is filled with a lot of uncertainties and we don't know what's there and we don't know what to expect there and it's a brand new thing that we've never seen before and at the same time and this happens to the Israelites that eventually even when they do leave Egypt they are they're still remembering fond memories of Egypt they're like you know what it's better for us to go back to Egypt rather than to be wandering in this desert you know lacking faith that they will ever ever receive the promise of God because the moment that God comes to us you know let's say um you know, we just had the Feast of the Pentecost last Sunday. The Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, okay? But the life they still had in front of them was a long and arduous one. Like, it wasn't like, okay, we received the Holy Spirit, and now suddenly it's like we're already in heaven. There is a process. There is a path. There is, there is difficulty. There was martyrdom for all of them. And even for a person who receives the Holy Spirit, like if you look, for instance, when we finish studying the book of Corinthians, right? The book of Corinthians, St. Paul is writing to the Corinthians who are now baptized Christians who left behind paganism in order to become Christians. And yet, you see all the problems they have. They have problems and conflicts and dissensions and sexual immorality and like all these things. Like just because they became Christians doesn't mean that suddenly in a, in a moment they became, you know, sanctified. Suddenly in the moment they changed all their thoughts, they changed all their actions, they became perfect. N it did not happen right? 
it was a process, and that's why St. Paul was patiently trying to correct them, to help them, to guide them, and so on. So from the moment that we accept the Lord, from the moment that we accept his calling, to the moment that we re actually receive the promised land, this is not an instantaneous thing. This is something that requires work. It requires our effort. It requires repentance. You know, it, it requires a lot of things from our side. And so here, if God had not essentially pushed them to the point where they literally could not stay any longer, right, then maybe they would have never accepted to leave. Because, again, what I know, even though it might be abusive and bad, is better in my mind than that thing that you're set telling me is great, but I just don't know it. And I don't have it now, and I don't really believe that I'm going to get it, not necessarily. Because, like you said, maybe their faith is superficial, right? So God said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it such that you want to get out of Egypt as fast as possible. And the way he did that, one of the ways he did that is just to make it completely unbearable for them. So from the mind of the Hebrews, they are looking at Moses and Aaron and say, you know what, you are like, you are like the worst prophets. You know, you come here, you tell us God is going to bring us out and give us all these good things. But from the moment that you came, you are just making things worse, right? Little did they know, and actually Moses didn't either, right? that this had to happen in order for them to even seriously take into consideration this offer. Because it sounds great, but how many people would actually do it? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? Like even Moses himself, he is looking at everything that's happened, and he's saying, this was not the outcome I expected. You know, you, you came and told me to talk to Pharaoh, this was not the outcome that I expected. Why did you come and even bring me here? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, neither have you delivered your people at all. Right? It's almost said in a tone of like, you know, God, you're not holding up your, your end of the bargain. You told me that I would come and that the people would be let go. But actually, if you remember... Back in Exodus 4, verse 21, this is what God said to Moses. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So God had actually already told Moses, right, that this would happen. Maybe he didn't tell him about increasing the work and making it more difficult, but he said uh, he will not let the people go. In order to set Moses' expectations rightly so that when he goes, he is not phased by what's going to happen. Also, at the end of chapter 4, Moses goes to the Israelites. He does the miracles that God had showed him to do, and it says the people believed. But now that belief was very short-lived because the moment that things started to go in a direction that they didn't want, right, they lost all of that faith that they had, which was very small. And actually, you see also... You know, a lot of times people talk about miracles. And you know what? Only if we could see miracles, then our faith would be rock solid. You know, if we could see miracles, then, you know, we would have no doubt. These people saw miracles. They saw Moses turn a stick into a snake. Can you imagine seeing that? Right? That was not enough. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, right? The rich man, after he is in Hades, he, he's speaking to Abraham. And he tells Abraham, let somebody rise from the dead to go to my family so that they do not live the same kind of life I did. And Abraham responded, they have the law and the prophets. If they do not listen to them, neither will they listen or believe if somebody were to rise from the dead, right? Which sounds like 
I mean, can you imagine that you know someone who died and rose from the dead? But according to, according to him, he's saying that is not enough, right? Because it is not just to be convinced. Because you have to actually sacrifice something for this life. In order to be a believer, you are not just saying, I am adopting a set of principles and rules or thoughts or beliefs. You're saying, I am giving my entire life to God. Everything about me, every part of me, every thought I have, I am giving it to God and letting it be done according to his will and not according to my will. So you are giving up your whole life to someone, to be a believer. This is why when, when Christ was speaking uh, to the people about what does it take to be a disciple, and he said, count the cost. Are you willing to give up? Are you willing to give? When, he went, when the, the rich young ruler went to Christ and he said, what should I do to inherit the kingdom? And he said, go give, up, give away all you have. S- give it to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. And the man walked away sad because he couldn't, even though he believed that this man was the truth. He believed that Jesus was the truth. And he walked away sad because even though he knew he was the truth, he could not give away all that he had. And he could not sell it and give it to the poor because his attachment to it. So just because we know, just because I see someone rise from the dead, just because I see plagues happen, just because I see Moses turn a stick into a snake, that doesn't make me able to follow, right? It doesn't, it doesn't empower me to follow. That just is a, maybe is a curiosity, something interesting, something that I'm going to think about. But for me to give up myself for this, for me to suffer pain for this, for these uh, Hebrews to believe and follow this man into the, the desert, to give away their whole way of life, their homes and everything, to follow him to a brand new way of life, right? You know, like we make every possible arrangement when we are just going on vacation to travel from here to here. And we look at everything and try to plan our way ahead. Here you're talking to these people who leave. You don't know where you're going. You don't have any permanent place. You're not even going to a city. You're, you're, you don't even have clothes. You don't even have food. Millions of people that are going into the wilderness without food or clothing or water. And God did not even tell them how they would be taken care of. He didn't tell them that he's going to send them bread from heaven. He didn't tell them they were going to have water from a rock. And he didn't tell them that their clothes would never wear out. And yet that's what God prepared, right? So it's not an easy thing for them to simply say, okay, we choose to leave Egypt. No, God had to push them out of Egypt. And here, even though God told Moses, right, what to expect, here he is still in this state because, you know, we talked about the transformation of Moses over time. Moses is still in this period where he is like he hasn't been fully convinced yet. He has, like, come here begrudgingly to Egypt because God, again, pushed him to come. And he is still at this phase where he doesn't fully trust. He is, like, questioning everything. Okay, I'm doing what you're asking me to do, but I'm not convinced of it. And right now, I'm just, like, people hate me because I've come here and made things worse for them. So definitely at this point, there's a lot of resistance, okay, also, just like God told Moses this, we can see what is it that God has told us about what to expect in the world. You know, when God says that we will have tribulation, it shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> like it, it, when it happens, it, it, sh- it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be something that will be like, you know, a lot of times people will doubt God when there's tribulation. Actually, no, it should be the opposite. <laughs> when we have tribulation, that's when God is confirming that what he said was true because he never claimed that there would not be. We imagine 
we imagine and put things in the mind of God or, or in, the, in the mouth of God as though he said it or promised it or claimed it, that's not true. God never said there wouldn't be tribulation. Actually, he said he would take the tribulation and he would turn it into something good. He would turn it into praise. He would turn it into faith. He would turn it into character. He would turn it into like something to reward us with, right? He didn't say it wouldn't happen. So here also, Moses and the people, they really like, please, we wish, we want to just go back to the way the things were. Chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This was necessary in order, because God wanted the exit of the Hebrews from Egypt to be something very dramatic, because it had to be memorable. It couldn't just be, oh, okay, see you later, have a good you know, life. It, it, it had to be something very dramatic, because this was the defining moment of the creation of the Israel nation, right? This was, this was the creation, of this was their identity, so that for hundreds of years after this, they would look back and say, we believe in the God who brought our ancestors out of Egypt and, uh, and out of from the, the land of the Egyptians with power. So that any time that they would doubt, they would just remember, no, this is the God who brought our people out of Egypt with power. So, so in order for God to truly be glorified and in order for us to really have faith, God has to do something dramatic so that we cannot deny that God is the one who did it. It cannot be denied. You know, it's so easy for us to find other explanations for things as human beings, you know. It's so easy for us to dismiss things. What God is about to do now cannot be dismissed by anyone, nor by the Egyptians. It, no one can deny what God is about to do. So he, he brought things down, like, to the worst possible level, right, to the, to the wor in the worst possible way, so that when God begins to work, it is so clear and evident that this is the work of God and not the work of man, okay? And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, I was not known to them, okay? The, here, the, the name Lord is the name um, Jehovah or Yahweh, okay? And this word actually was used, right, in the book of Genesis when he was speaking about himself to, to the patriarchs. But what this means is that all the promises that God had promised the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had never been fulfilled, right, because the fulfillment was always in the future generation. It was always God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and Abraham never saw the fulfillment of that promise. And then in the life of Isaac, God confirmed the promise again, and Isaac never saw the fulfillment of that promise. Again, in the life of Jacob, he never saw the fulfillment of the promise. Now, finally, is the fulfillment, right? Now, finally, is the place where the, 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 the name of God, remember last time we said about the, the I am, right? The name of God, the identity of God will be manifested through his fulfillment of all these promises that he has been making for generations, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. This land that God had called Abraham to go and dwell in, that Isaac also dwelled in, that Jacob also had dwelled in, 
This land that God had promised them for hundreds of years before, this is the land that God again is confirming the same covenant. He is reminding them of all his actions throughout history because there's a continuity. It brings them a sense of purpose. The same thing with us as, as Christians, right? Like when we understand who we are, when we understand our origin, when we understand God and how he created us and what he intended us for, our lives are not just, you know, a, a, a momentary, like a period of 100 years or so that we live on the earth and then we disappear. No, it's we are part of a bigger thing. We are part of um, the, the people of God who have existed all the way from the very beginning. And so it gives us identity. Our identity is not to be found in, you know, the country that we live in or the clothes that we wear or the celebrities that we like or the music we listen to or any of these things. Our identity is found in the God who created us and that we are part of a bigger story, right? And so this is what God is reminding Moses here of. You are part of something bigger. You know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are a part of that story, right? And certainly each of us is a part of the church, and maybe we don't all have very dramatic roles to play like Moses or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But each of us does have a role. Because in the, in the eyes of God, every soul, every human soul is just as precious. Even if it's someone who is like a parent taking care of their children and raising their, their, uh, uh, their kids to be like God, godly, right? In the midst of a godless generation that we're in, this is a great service. This is a great purpose. And if it's nothing else but that, that is a wonderful purpose, right? Each of us has been given by God some purpose. We are a part of a bigger story. We are all part of the church, and we all have a role to play in the church. And here God is like reminding the people that who they are. You are not just slaves in the, in the land of Egypt, right? Y you are more than slaves. You are be you're, you're better than this. And maybe also symbolically and spiritually, like when we are maybe living a life of sin away from God, and God comes to remind us and say, who are you? Is this who you are? Is this who I created you to be? Or I created you for something better than this? That God would call us out of the slavery of sin by reminding us that we are redeemed by his blood. To remind us that we are better than this life, right? That, that maybe we have fallen into as a way of motivation and encouragement. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Right? Again, the people had to feel like they were really under bondage. You know in the story of when Lazarus died? Um, and, and before he died when the Lord was in a different city and the disciples were there and, and the Lord told the disciples, our, our friend Lazarus is sick, you know, and, and he, he has fallen asleep, meaning he had died. In that conversation, one of the things that God says is what, I'm glad that I was not there, you know, and uh, why? Because if God was there, if the Lord was there, then maybe he would have just prevented him from dying. But now the occasion of him dying is an opportunity for Christ to go and raise him from the dead, right? Again, we, we talk about the dramatic, right? How did, how did Christ demonstrate his power over death? 
He demonstrated it in his own life, obviously, but he also demonstrated it in the life of others, that he could raise someone from the dead. And if Lazarus had not died, there would not have been that occasion. So again, here the Lord waited, waited, waited until the right time. But all of that time, he was hearing the groaning of his children. It's not that he had left them or abandoned them. All of that time, he still remembered the covenant. It had not been forgotten. Maybe all the people forgot. You know, maybe Moses forgot, all the people forgot. Everyone was living a different life altogether. But God remembered, and now it was the time to deliver the people. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God is confirming what he is going to do, okay? And what he is doing is not just, I'm doing you a favor, or I'm doing something powerful for you. He's wanting to establish a relationship, right? The relationship is that you will be my people, and I will be your God. It is a betrothal. It is like a marriage. It is saying, my role of the covenant, I will fulfill for you, right? And in response to my love for you, for my protection, for my, you know, for the good things I give you, you will respond with love also to me through your obedience to what I'm saying, okay? So it becomes a relationship. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, okay? So it goes, the relationship has to go both ways. He is not just a God. He is their God. Back to what we were saying before about he is not just the God of my fathers, but he is my God personally, okay? So that they will see him not just as a God of power who is living up somewhere in heaven, but he is a personal God. He is a God who knows them. He's a God who, who sees their suffering, who responds to it, who can s help them. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. He is, again, confirming that he will fulfill his promises. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. You know, Moses is the one who has the benefit of hearing from God directly, which is a great blessing. I mean, imagine you are in the place of Moses and that you have access to God directly and he talks to you like with a voice and you hear him. Moses himself was struggling, right? In, in, with everything that was happening. But he at least could talk to God in this way. He had conversations with God. There was no doubt in his mind about God was there. Maybe he still didn't understand God or doubted what God was doing or why he was doing it. But he knew God was present and he knew that this is what God was saying. But when it came to the, um, to the rest of the people, who did they have to speak to them? Moses, right? So they didn't believe Moses. You know, they, 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 are, they are too hurt. There's too much pain and suffering in their lives in order to even hear the truth, right? Which is true of us. I mean, som sometimes we have so much anguish that we can't even see through it to see the God who is on the other side of it, right? But he is there, whether we can feel it or not. And this goes to um, faith is different than emotions, you know? Sometimes we have the worst possible negative feelings about things, but I can still have faith even while I experience those things. I can still believe even if 
we don't see any evidence of that faith. Or we don't, have, we don't have any evidence of everything that God has promised, and yet I can still believe in it. That is the times when our faith is really the strongest and only thing that we have. You know, if we believe God is working for our good, but nothing I see around me is good. You know, I, I, I believe that God loves me, but I don't feel anything or see anything of the evidence of the love of God. But my faith is not based on just what my senses tell me. My senses are always going to, you know, deceive me because the senses are telling me something that's very, um, you know, limited. I can't, I can't fully understand or fully see. I don't see the big picture. I just see what's happening in this moment, okay? But I don't see how that ties into everything else in my life or ties into the lives of other people. And sometimes it takes a very long time before we can see that, right? And yet to believe and to have faith and to persevere despite that. And this is what the people here needed to do, is they say, okay, we believe that God is present and we believe that God is doing good, but we don't feel it right now. And yes, we are in anguish. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of this land. So again, he's telling him, go again. He's already gone before. And the outcome was the people had more work. So God is telling Moses to go again. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How, th how then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So he's saying, no one's listening to me. Even the Israelites don't believe me, and they don't believe that you sent me. So how much more if is Pharaoh going to you know, not believe what it is that I have to say? Okay, The people lost hope. Pharaoh already said no, right? And Moses, again, because he's looking at himself, and he's, he says the same thing he said before, is that he is of uncircumcised lips, meaning that his, he has no like ability to speak, Okay, um, he is saying this again about who he is, about himself. Saying I am of uncircumcised, like he almost he feels like it's my failure. You know, maybe I didn't say the right thing to Pharaoh. M get someone else who can speak better than me, who can go and stand before Pharaoh. Because again, l as before, in the mind of Moses, he feels like everything is resting on him. You know, if he does a great job and he's good at what he does and he has talents in speaking, that somehow he's going to convince Pharaoh and Pharaoh's going to let it happen. But because he doesn't have those things, right, then he feels like I wasn't able to convince Pharaoh to do it. Okay? So the idea of the uncircumcised lips is because circumcision represents like a renewal or a sanctification, right, for the people. So Moses is like saying, God, you have not loosen my tongue like you haven't sanctified my words you haven't you haven't like changed my abilities right since when you you spoke to me at the beginning and so he's looking at himself as he is not able to do it um, then the lord spoke to moses and aaron and gave them a command for the children of israel and for pharaoh king of egypt to bring the children of israel out of the land of egypt so again he's telling him to tell pharaoh these are the heads of the father's houses so now there's going to be like a brief gene genealogy, right? And, and, and this is important when we see these names because a lot of times we see names and we're not really, you know, we kind of gloss over these names. Um, but the idea that these names are there shows what? About God. That he remembers each individual, right? He, 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 he's saying, I am establishing my covenant with each of these people by name. 
Like imagine if, you know, somehow God could um, start reading the names from the book of life. You know, there'll be a huge list of names. But wouldn't you be waiting there for God to say your name? Imagine if God said your name, right, when he was reading the, the names of all of his people. Like, how touching would that be to, to know that my name is said? Even if it's one of many. You know, we go and tolerate, like, the graduations where they say, like, 600 names or whatever. But imagine if it was billions of names, you know. The, these names are, are kind of put yourself in, in this. Like, put yourself and say, if I was living at this time, then my name would be one of these names. Like, God is the God who cares about the single person. You know, when he says um, that the good shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after the one lost sheep, right? Just the one. That even if I were the one lost sheep, that he would come after me and that God remembers each of these people and he has a relationship with all of them. So these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Wehenoch and Palu and Ezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the 12 tribes. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. These actually are going to be um, important later. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Lebni and Shimi, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mahli and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed and his father's sister as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. Aaron took to himself Elishaba, daughter of Abinadab, sister of Nashon, as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. The sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Ab Abisaph. These are the families of the Korites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took of himself one of the daughters of Putiel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. So it's confirming that of this list of names where uh, Moses and Aaron are mentioned, that this is the same Moses and Aaron that is being spoken of here. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am a man of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh heed me? So again, this is the end of the chapter. But God is confirming again, what is it that I'm asking you to do? And notice one thing about this, is God never explains what's going to happen. Next. Like he, d he never says what's going to happen next. He just says one step. And that's really the way that God operates throughout all of Scripture. When he says, go do this, he doesn't explain why. He doesn't explain how. He just says, do this. 
and everything else is left up to the faith of the person, you know? Like the story I always think about is like when God told Joshua to go around and walk around the walls of the city of Jericho and that somehow this is going to bring victory. And, and, I, and I asked myself, you know, if somebody came and told me you have this big city and you want to conquer the city, oh, just walk around the city. Like I, I, I wouldn't do it. You know, like like that's too that's that's ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. What do you mean walk around the city for what? Why am I going to walk around the city? How many times should I walk around the city? How long? How many days do I have to walk around the city for this to happen? And yet, the people who are the most faithful in Scripture that learn the ways of God, and Moses will become one of them, they learn never to question things. They just do, because when they do, they found that God is always faithful in responding, right? But he doesn't tell them ahead of time. He doesn't say, here is my plan, just so that you're, th you're aware of it. Here is my plan. This is exactly what you should expect, one, two, three, right? In our minds, this is what we like. But that's not the one way that God operates. Because in the end, he wants us to follow him not because we're convinced, not because we agree with it. He wants us to follow him because he is God, period. And we are human beings, you know? Just as parents, parents want their kids to follow them because they are the parents, because we know what we're talking about. You don't have to understand. Just do what we're saying and everything will be fine, right? When, s when someone continues to question, to question, to question all the time, right? They are not actually being obedient. They're just being in agreement with a certain course of action. Here, for us to truly be obedient to God, we follow him without even knowing, right? You want me to go to talk to Pharaoh again? Okay. You want me to walk around the city of Jericho? Okay. You want me to tell him how many times? I'll tell him this many times. Just because you said so. Right? And this is this point here um, that we're going to see in Moses. That when he begins to see that, f that God is doing these wonders. Right? Because now we're going to get into the ten plagues. All right? that's going to happen in Exodus. When God begins to do these wonders, and Moses begins to see God's faithfulness. He begins to see God is truly doing everything that he said that he would do. Y you see that by the end of the plagues, he's responding differently. He is not the same as we see him now. Okay. Any questions about this chapter? Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for the lessons that you teach us through the life of your servant Moses. We ask, O God, that as we read your scripture, we put ourselves in the place of those faithful people that came before us and lived a life that is pleasing to you. Do not let us take for granted their example, but to see, O Lord, from them all the lessons that we can learn and how we can live a life that is, is one that is pleasing in your sight and one that brings us joy and fulfillment and to make us feel, O oh Lord, that we are protected and taken care of and that this world that is around us, though it might seem random and chaotic, and yet we trust that you have found order in it and you create order for us as your children to walk through safely. We thank you for your goodness and we thank you for the power that you manifest. Teach us your ways, O oh Lord, and forgive us our sins in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, 
Hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.